This podcast is not suitable for work. If you're under the age of 18, kindly and with all due respect, get the fuck out. I mean it. Go on. Bye-bye. Mm-mm. See you later. This isn't for you. Nope. Mm-mm. America has a strange relationship with sex. We're obsessed with it, but it terrifies us. We censor it because it's constantly being shoved down our throats. But our dirty little secret is we like things shoved down our throats, especially when we're in bondage or we're wearing leather or being slapped around a little bit. And, oh, <clears throat> I'm Sunny Megatron. Join Ken Melvoinberg and I as we explore, dissect, and demystify American sex. Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, American Sex, with Ken Melvoin Berg and Sonny Megatron. Hey, this is Sonny Megatron, and Ken and I are in love with the Butters Personal Lubricant. The Butters is an all-natural lube that our sponsor, PeepShowToys.com, turned us on to. The Butters is an oil-based formula that's safe for all orifices, even vulvas and vaginas. It's got aloe, raw shea butter, coconut oil, grapeseed oil, and all sorts of wonderful things. Cosmo said, quote, it's like a lush face mask for your vulva. And not only is it vegan and all natural, the Butters Company is also a queer-owned black business that keeps their prices low so their luxurious products are accessible to more people. You can get the Butters Lube at PeepShowToys.com and don't forget to use your 10% off discount code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, when you check out. And what's even cooler is now until April 15th, 2018, if you buy any butt toy from peepshowtoys.com, you'll get a free two ounce jar of the butters with your order. And friends, please support small independently owned sex positive businesses like peepshowtoys.com and the butters. They give a lot to our community. So please show them your appreciation with your patronage. And it's just amazing that they keep their prices low intentionally so that they're affordable for all. And you know what? Since we're talking about the Butters and Peep Show Toys, that reminds me that I have some more cool things to tell you. I will be doing a Facebook live stream tomorrow, Tuesday, April 3rd. And don't worry if you miss it. It will be archived on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sunny Megatron. I'm going to be comparing three of the hottest toys on the market, the latest versions of the Womanizer, the Satisfier, and the Sona. I'll tell you what they do, how they work, and help you figure out which one might be best for you. And even cooler is we are kicking off a giveaway sponsored by Peep Show Toys, and the prize is whichever one of the three toys I highlight in my video that you want. It'll be hosted on my website, the contest, at SunnyMegatron.com slash Show Giveaway. It'll be similar to some of my other giveaways. You know, you have to follow us on Twitter for a couple of points, yada, yada, do a couple of tasks. Plus, you can also get a bunch of entries by typing in the secret word in the contest widget. One word you're going to learn right here, right now, an American Sex Podcast. And to get the other one, you need to watch my Facebook live stream. Okay, are y'all ready for the first clue? The secret word, secret word number one is, the drum roll please, but it sounds more like cunnilingus, cunnilingus roll, 
snozberries yes snozberries is your first secret word now remember to watch my live stream april 3rd at 9 p.m central on facebook.com slash sunny megatron or catch the replay and you'll get the other secret word so sunny do you know what snozberries are actually no okay first of all i've never i've no, this is funny i've never seen willy wonka and i was like what do i what's the secret we're gonna be and the word snozberries just popped into my head and then i was like i better look it up because what if it's like i don't know some racist term or something bad you know so i look it up and it was like fate destiny Susanna briss intuition when i found out what it actually meant now unfortunately what it actually means isn't what you think it is what? at all. You what? didn't you didn't dig deep enough. Oh so, damn, is it racist? <laughs> I hope it's not something really bad. It is it is not something bad okay, at good, all. Good. So everybody there was a rumor for a while, uh, after a comedian and I think his name is Anthony Scabelli, and he uh, wrote an article for cracked.com and he stated that Roald Dahl, the guy who wrote and, and by the way, the name of the book is Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, and it pisses me off to see somebody referring to the book. And that was uh, made in 1964, the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 1971. And dates are important in this whole thing that we're going to be talking about for just one second. So this guy, Anthony, he's a comedian, writes this article, and he says, based on a book that Roald Dahl wrote after Charlie in the Chocolate Factory that says that snozberries are dicks. Yeah, um, like they were licking dicks on the wallpaper. No, they were not licking dicks. They were not licking dicks. Damn it was it. actually fruit. But there, it, it there's uh, another article out there which tears apart the crack.com article because Roald Dahl in 19, I want to say 46, wrote a book called Gremlins. Now the book. Wait, is that the movie Gremlins? No, but okay. it's the same kind of like little critter. But okay. the problem is he also has snozberries and gremlins, but in, because that's what the gremlins eat, but they're a delicious, weird, juicy fruit. Now, what the conclusion was is that Roald Dahl in all of his books uses this weird word, snozberries. And sometimes it happens to be a dick, but after Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. So originally it was a weird, funky fruit. So there is a snozberry complication. Oh man, I wanted it to be dicks because that would be appropriate. Because it, it was, sex podcast it, it was in the book that he wrote. We like dicks, later, you know. yeah. But oh. it, it wasn't exactly what Shh, you thought. Ken, Ken, let's just pretend snozberries are dicks, okay? I'm going to pretend they're a delicious, juicy fruit that's eaten it, by gremlins. Is, is your dick a delicious, a delicious Lucy fruit? A delicious, a delicious Lucy fruit? Are you fruit? having a mini stroke? What's no, going on I'm, over there? I had a little southern comfort. No, I didn't. I'm fine. <laughs> All right. So, hi, everyone. I'm Sunny Megatron. <laughs> and I'm Ken Melvoinberg. <laughs> and you're listening to episode 35 of American Sex Podcast. I'm really excited because this coming weekend, Ken and I are on our way to Rochester, New York, to teach four workshops at the Rochester Erotic Arts Festival. And we're super duper excited. I've actually never been to Rochester, New York. So, woo! I hear it's a blast. No, I really do. Is it fun, Rochester? Um, every time I've been there, it's for work, but I do know that Rochester, New York has the highest rate per capita of serial killers of any city in the Ooh. United States, but they don't have any of the famous ones there, oh, but they have yeah. more. When I used to be a radio buyer, I used to buy radio spots for Miller Brewing Company. I used to buy Rochester, New York, even though I've never actually been there, but whatever, we're going to be there and we're lugging an entire suitcase with us filled with the butters lube. Thanks to our sponsor, peepshowtoys.com. Quite a few students in our Rochester classes are going to be super de duper de happy and super de duperty slippery lubed up super duperty duperty because 
they're all going home with are some butters sun- lube. Are you Sonny Flanders now? No, I. You know, maybe it's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'm feeling very like goofy, like schnozberries. <laughs> Remember, secret word, schnozberries. Get that in your head. So, listeners, I know you love our monthly sex toy giveaways, and of course, the Womanizer Sona Satisfier giveaway. That actually isn't the only giveaway we're doing this month because CastleMegastore.com has something brand new and hot off the presses for you. And it's superty duperty. And it's from Jimmy Jane. Jimmy Jane makes my favorite vibrator, which is the Form 2. And they have a new line out called Love Pods. So Castle Megastore sent us what I think is the most intriguing looking of all three called the Halo. It's also the most expensive because it's like 150 bucks, which is awesome. We got ours in the mail today and I haven't tried it yet, but I'm actually really excited to. It looks like the Form 2, but it's got three prongs and I don't know, maybe it does suction. I'm not sure what it does. I can't wait to try it and I can't wait for you to try it also. Win one of your own by going to SunnyMegatron.com slash Halo. You've got all month to rack up entries as we draw the winner at the end of April. And don't forget, you can always get 20% off select items at castlemegastore.com when you use the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at checkout. So I'm so excited about the guests that we have today on American Sex Podcast. Uh, Sunny and I are big history geeks, and about 90% of what I repost in social media comes from one source, and that's the person that we're interviewing today. Now, Dr. Kathleen Karakuni is a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA, specializing in craft production, coffin studies, and economies in the ancient world. Dr. Cooney received her PhD in Egyptology from John Hopkins University. In 2005, she was co-curator of Tutankhamun and the Golden Age of the Pharaohs at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Cooney produced a comparative archaeology television series entitled Out of Egypt, which aired in 2009 on the Discovery Channel and is available online via Netflix and Amazon. The Woman Who Would Be King Hatshepsut's Rise to Power in Ancient Egypt is Cooney's first trade book, and it benefits from her immense knowledge of Egypt's ancient history to craft an illuminating biography of its least known female king. As an archaeologist who spent years at various excavations in Egypt, Cooney draws from the latest field research to fill in the gaps in the physical record of Hatshepsut. Cooney's current research in coffin reuse, primarily focusing on the 20th dynasty, is ongoing. Her research investigates the socioeconomic and political turmoil that have plagued the period, ultimately affecting funerary and burial practices in ancient Egypt. This project has taken her around the world over the span of five to six years to study and document more than 300 coffins and collections, including those in Cairo, London, Paris, Berlin, and Vatican City. Okay, so listeners, if you're thinking, wait the f- wait a fucking minute right here. Hold up. This American Sex Podcast, it's about sex, sexuality, gender, and related topics in the United States. And this is Egypt, and also Egypt 3,500 years ago. And where's the sex? So just, just wait. Just listen. Kara's area of study has a surprising amount of relevance to what's going on today in the United States. So we start out in our conversation talking about the place of women in society in ancient Egypt and what we can learn from that. And then we go on to discuss parallels between the past and the Trump presidency, because, you know, as you all know, the personal is political and this administration is ripe with sexism and pussy grabbing and has a knack for encroaching on sexual freedoms. And of course, we end up with sexy hieroglyphics and hand jobs and semen salads. It's great. So what a wonderful, happy ending. Here is Kara Cooney. 
Today, we have an incredibly super special guest, Dr. Kara Cooney, Egyptologist at UCLA. Now, Dr. Cooney, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm sorry, Kara. Like, we're going to be informal today. We're going to do this. Yeah, we're informal. I'm totally excited, Kara. See, I'm informal. You guys, yeah, please call me Kara. The reason why I'm so excited and why I kind of think you're a rock star, a lot of people on our podcast don't know this about me, but when other children were reading Dr. Seuss when they were like eight, nine, and 10 years old, I was a huge geek with Egyptology, and my bedtime stories were literally uh, Sir Wallace Budge. And I had his book on, uh, in fact, I'm holding in my hand right now my childhood book on Tutankhamun, Amonism, Otanism, and Egyptian monotheism. I had his book on Egyptian religion, Egyptian magic, and it was just so exciting for me to learn about that stuff as a kid. Like some kids like dinosaurs, others like others like dynasties <laughs> like dynasty yes i know sweetheart. you like dynasty the tv show no, dynasty. oh this dynasty yeah. oh i thought you were talking about your alexis no, not alexis carrington <laughs> that's a way different dynasty yes dynasties like the 18th and 19th and spe- uh, specifically and we wanted to talk to you about your views on feminism sexuality and how they sort of intersect with egyptology and you know archaeology in general Okay. I, tell us a little bit about your newest book. Well, thanks for having me on, you guys. And, um, you know, Egyptologists unite. No, no Egyptologist ever asks another why they're an Egyptologist, because there is no answer to the question. We just are, and we just do. And it's a very emotional sort of thing. I still don't know why I do what I do. But um, getting to your, your question, my latest book is called When Women Ruled the World. And it's about six women from ancient Egypt who were allowed to be leaders of state, five of whom became king, highest level of leader of state. And it's, it's answering through a biographical lens two questions. Number one, why did Egypt allow women, unlike any other place on the planet in the ancient world, to systematically rule their land. What was it about Egypt that allowed this? Were they more enlightened? Was it their system of government? What's going on? And number two, I wanted to hit on our own modern hostility, ongoing human hostility towards females in power and what that is and where it comes from and what makes it um, continue in our world without criticism or question and how we can, whatever your politics are, look at the suggested lies of somebody like Hillary Clinton or the suggestion that she's running some sort of sex ring out of a pizza parlor basement. And that that is so much more powerful than the absolute fact of repeated lies by a man like Donald Trump. I find that very interesting that we humans are so hostile towards female power that we still can't talk about Hillary Clinton in an open way without feeling embarrassed that we voted for this woman or embarrassed that, that, um, she may have been a good president. This idea of females in, in power is still something that um, human beings have a have a great deal of work to do on. Right. So at this point, our listeners are going, oh, it's American Sex Podcast. I know why they have an Egyptologist on. It's making sense. <laughs> so there are so many parallels that we can draw from what you've studied in ancient Egypt cultures. And, and one of the things you touched on is how or why females came to power in Egypt. 
why was it was it something just coincidental was it something very calculated how do we get there at that point in history well there's a, a couple of things that are rather uncomfortable that make me a little upset the more i started to delve into it and i teach a class at ucla called women in power in the ancient world and i compare egypt to greece to persia to china to rome to other ancient cultures trying to crack this and figure it out and the the main reason is that Egypt is different from all of these places and that it is geographically and culturally protected. It has, uh, it's difficult to invade Egypt through deserts and Mediterranean Sea. It is a place that protects the same basic culture, language, religious system for thousands of years. And because of that, it created a divine kingship unlike any other, a protected system of rule that was for most of its history, uh, very hard to topple, very hard to bring down. And in the midst of that divine kingship, the competition was also tamped down. This is a place that enjoys the status quo, that likes things to continue as they were and, and to not have, this isn't like Rome or Greece where one man falls, another man takes his place and the competition is ongoing. Or a place like Northwest Asia where the city-states are forming coalitions and reforming co coalitions in the modern Middle East or ancient Middle East um, in a constant battle to the death. Egypt is a place that has a, a protected authoritarian rule. And that authoritarian rule that its population wants to be protected then requires women to come in and protect it. So imagine that, that a king dies unexpectedly and he leaves a six-year-old on the throne. Would you invite the kid's uncle, the dead king's brother, to come in and rule on behalf of that kid? Or would you invite the kid's mother to rule on behalf of him? Who is more likely to continue the status quo, to, to allow the culture and government to continue without competition, military competition or political competition? And the answer for the ancient Egyptians was again and again and again, it's the woman, stupid. And so right. they allowed the woman <laughs> to come into power on behalf of a, a male child or a male who is unable to rule for whatever reason, they did so regularly. And the woman is the best asset of any king. The woman is allowed, only allowed by humans to come to power in the context of family rule. And so that's why you only generally see the woman coming to power in systems of hierarchical kingship. And Egypt being, I would argue, the strongest and most perfected of those systems around the ancient world, um, they allowed women uh, to do this again and again. And here's the other uncomfortable truth, is that I would argue that human beings are so hostile towards female power that they often need it imposed upon them, which is why I think authoritarianism is one of the only systems that would actually impose this and just tell people, I'm sorry, no, you don't get a choice. This isn't a democracy. This isn't an oligarchy. This is it. She is of divine blood. She's our ruler now. And thus you, you see women taking um, high, the highest level of power as a divine entity in their people's eyes um, again and again. So then in ancient Egypt, when these women did rise to power through what you just described to us, was there still an undercurrent of misogyny or hostility, or were they looked on as legitimate leaders equal to that of a man? They're not equal. They're legitimate, but they can never be equal because a woman can never 
populate a harem nursery with dozens or hundreds of sons. That's not something that biologically she can do. A woman will always lose in the competition of, of biological economy. She can produce one or maybe two, if she can get through that birth in the ancient world, children a year. And a man can produce 365 or more births outside of himself in a given year, depending on how active he can be sexually, how healthy he can be sexually. So in terms of status quo and Egypt keeping its dynasty healthy, it's pretty extraordinary that they allowed women into this position at all, because a woman, most of these women, and in fact, let me count on my hands, um, most of them did not leave a bodily legacy. Many of them who ruled as leader of state, as king, a woman like Nefru Sobek or a woman like Tawasra, of the, one of um, the 12th dynasty and one of the 19th dynasty, getting back to dynasties, um, neither of them left a child on the throne after her rule. Um, but yet they were allowed to serve as leader of state, as king, not as queen, because that just means sexual partner of the king. She served as king herself, but she didn't leave progeny behind her. So is she legitimate? Yes. Is she respected as king? Yes. But, and, and is even buried in state. Uh, most of, of all of these women from the evidence that we have were buried in state. Maybe Cleopatra wasn't, but we can discuss. Um, and, and yet they're not equal to the men just because they're, the, the methods of reproduction of gestation for nine, more than nine months is not something that's going to compare with what a man can do. And then any of us who have given birth, and I have done this and have gestated a child, know what it does to the body, to the mind, to the psyche, to the energy, <laughs> to everything. Oh, and, yes, um, yes. Woman, yes. And so, you know, a woman is also debilitated by that process. And it's, um, it's just a harder thing for a woman to be a ruler in a system that demands progeny of, of children and to be the one at the center of the wheel. It makes more biological sense for the woman to be on the, the rims of that wheel and to put a man at the center economically. You know, the, like a lot of what you're saying resonates so much with either incredibly powerful women, like when you start thinking about world leaders like Catherine the Great, Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but then I start thinking about some of the women that may have had to take on the guise of a different gender, uh, like Pope Joan, for example, uh, there was one pope that was actually, oh, they suspect was a woman. Uh, was Were there any of the pharaohs that pretended to be a man or had gender differences? The women who ruled for long periods of time, Hatshepsut in particular, but also Nefertiti, and her story is being written as we speak by Egyptologists, those two women had to masculinize to match, not not probably because they were um, transgender or interested in being a different, um, sexuality had, had issues that, which every human population can and does have an exhibit. This is a natural part of life. Sex is not binary. Sex is much more complicated than culture will ever allow it to be. Um, sex is intersex. It can be a man who wants to be a woman, a woman who wants to be a man. I mean, these are things that are biologically represented in every, um, human population. But I don't think that Hatshepsut or Nefertiti were dressing as men or depicting themselves as men because they had transgender uh, issues. I think it's because they needed to match the patriarchy around them. Egyptian patriarchy never died. 
I wouldn't say ancient Egypt was misogynistic. It allowed women more freedoms than most other places in the ancient world. But it's the patriarchy. Egypt was always a patriarchy, despite its repeated allowance of females into power. And as I argue in my book, one of the great tragedies of this is that the females are allowed into power, but demanded to masculinize to fit what is expected, or to step back to allow uh, a boy who has grown up to be a man to take power instead of her. So she is there as a mere placeholder. She is there as a support of the patriarchy. That's what she does. And to ignore that and write a revisionist history of female power in ancient Egypt that had power for its own sake would be wrong. Um, I I don't think that we people in the modern world have, have changed much. We may have even regressed in terms of our understandings of power. We still live in patriarchies. Ancient Egypt was no different, but because its divine kingship and authoritarianism was so controlled, women were useful tools. If that mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Which which is disappointing because I was like, oh, oh, maybe this is like the utopia we've all dreamed of, you know, like the uh, Wonder Woman Island where we rule everything. So it wasn't. It was still a patriarchy, just like we're living in now. Yeah, and you could even look at Europe and say, well, Elizabeth I or Catherine the Great or Mary Queen of Scots or, you know, why did these women rule? You're, you're telling me that only in the ancient world or, yeah, but the reason there, I would argue, is that it's better to take a woman who is native and of royal blood than take a foreigner. So Victoria is allowed to rule, but her husband, the German, is not. And, and, and Catherine the Great is allowed to rule, but her lovers or husbands are not. And that's because you have a fragmented Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. So women like Elizabeth I or Catherine the Great, I would suggest, are only allowed to rule because the fragmented nation-state competition of a Roman Empire fall into fragmented bits demanded that women rule if there was no man able to step in. So they're they're only allowed when we need them to support an ongoing patriarchy. Right. So that's a little that's a little disappointing. So it's like, oh, we were better than the alternative. We were the the less of all the evils, basically, is why women rose to power. Well, the Egyptians did understand that if they had chosen a man to rule on behalf of the divine king rather than a woman, it would have invited trouble. They knew, like everyone else in this world, that aggression, rape, harassment, war is started by men almost entirely. They understood this, and they avoided the rule of those men in such vulnerable time periods and instead invited the rule of women instead. So I think there, there is still the understanding that women do and can rule differently, um, which is something that haunts my UCLA class, Women in Power in the Ancient World. Do women rule differently? Um, are we to, to make that conclusion that women's rule is somehow more inclusive, more nuanced, even softer, less martial, less warlike? Um, and that's something that I'm still grappling with, but I'm starting to fall on the side of yes. Um, sometimes women feel they need to wage a war to show that they are strong. They need to be a, you know, a Maggie Thatcher who invades. And, I was just going to say Maggie you know, Thatcher is the away. one who's coming right to yes. my mind right now. Or a Condoleezza Rice, you know, who shows that they have the power that a man can have and sometimes compensate or overcompensate. But in other situations, I think the more we move forward as a society and allow more women into power, 
the the more we will see how they can and do rule differently. But, you know, I grew up in Texas. I saw women all around me supporting in the, the religious evangelical patriarchy. And some of those women are as brutal toward the freedoms of their sex, if not more so um, than others. So, you know, I'm not, this isn't a complicated black and white situation. Um, but if the patriarchy is something that we're pushing against and a woman feels that she can do that, and she's not a representative or a placeholder of the patriarchy, then I think a woman can rule differently from a man, Mm. have different agendas. Yeah, you touched on some really good stuff. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to pick it up there. What can we learn from everything in the past and apply it to what's going on today? Because as you said, you, you talk a lot about today's politics in your classes. You post that stuff on Facebook. So we're going to dive in there as soon as we get back. Hey, Did you know American Sex Podcast has a Patreon page? Becoming a Patreon member is a great way to show your support for this podcast. It works kind of like, I don't know, funding for national public radio or how PBS works. If you appreciate our work and the fact that we provide it to the world free of charge, then you can help support it. And as a member of our Patreon family, you'll be eligible for nifty, cool rewards like bonus episodes, surprises in the mail, and more. Oh, and you'll get all of our episodes early, bonus stories from guests, and access to our private Patreon feed. So you thinking about it? You want to know more? Check out all the details at patreon.com slash americansex. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash American sex. Castle Megastore. Once you see their sex toys, you'll want more. I have no idea if Castle Megastore actually has a theme song, but I really dig Castle Megastore. So that's my gift to you, Castle, your very own theme song. And you listeners get a gift, too. If you go to CastleMegastore.com and use discount code SUNNY, that's S-U-N-N-Y, when you check out, you will receive 20% off your order. That's amazing. Castle mega store when you get your sex toys you'll be on the floor because you'll be using them so much and they'll be so awesome and you'll save so much money you'll get more than one and then you'll climax for a really long time and you'll just be passed out and you'll be like oh my god give me water those are the best orgasm ever and we're back with dr kara cooney so kara um one of the things that I find very interesting about social media in general is that, first of all, this is this is what brought you to my attention, is that you have some great uh, reposts and some shares and, you know, even, you know, stuff that I believe you had written at one point or another, uh, just about popular culture. And a lot, there's, a, there's a meme that had been going on for a while about it really being ancient Egypt all over again, because all people do right now is write on walls and show pictures of cats. Uh, so yeah, there's, right. there, there's all there, do you, do you think that there's any similarity to that with social media and what had been written on walls in ancient Egypt? Um, no, what the way we trade information now is um, it's such a fast clip and crossing borders where I can press C translation and read something in Arabic so easily um, from my Egyptian friends or, you know, there's so much um, connection that 
it's almost too much where we, we don't even know what's real. Well, well, now I'm coming full circle. Let me tell you what I mean. We don't know what's, what's the real story or not. In the ancient world, and particularly in ancient Egypt, information was carefully curated, controlled, and, um, and, and the messenger was, were the people at the top, and they controlled that message. So there was less of a, a grassroots um, connection from people across borders and more of a single-pointed sort of communication. Now, having said that, and what I mean by coming full circle, in both cases, I think you don't know what information is true. <laughs> Fake news. Leader, Fake hieroglyphics. Exactly. You're, <laughs> Your authoritarian leader in ancient Egypt can tell you that he is the divine offspring of Amun-Re and produced this whole story about how his mother was visited by the god and the guise of the father and you know, all of these things. And you, you don't doubt that, or maybe you do, but there's, there's very little way for you to say that that's fake news or whatever we want to, to call it. And with social media, there is a great ability of rulers of this country and other countries to pinpoint certain populations and to spread propaganda and um, false ideas that, that um, we organically spread amongst ourselves and, and thus uh, do the bidding of, of uh, authoritarian leaders without even knowing that we're doing it. So maybe it is all just the same. I, I don't know, just a very different method of information transmission. So that, that makes me ask another question here, and I, want, I would really want to know your personal opinion on this. Is, in your research, are there any pharaohs that were similar to the qualities that you see in Donald Trump today. Oh my God, yes. Authoritarianism is, Do tell, is yes. something that people are drawn to when they are afraid, when they feel um, like there is too much change. There is there is a a move towards authoritarianism. Authoritarianism, in and of itself, is somebody who can do or say anything, and the very social circumstances of that person are proof enough of why they are what they are. In other words, the king is the king, long live the king, and Donald Trump is president. As he says again and again, you know, well, I'm president. Well, I'm president. The, and, and I'm rich. I'm rich. This, it's like a predestination idea. The fact that he is president and rich means that he inherently did enough right to, to earn that position. So anything that he does while president or before being president or, you know, it, it should not be doubted. He can sleep with prostitutes. He can sleep with porn stars. He can make crazy decisions about the government. He can press the red button, but he, he was, you elected me and I'm rich. And so the, there is this uh, social um, reification of his power. And an Egyptian king was no different in saying that, I am king, and thus I am God-given. I, I am chosen. I, you could compare, and I, I'm sure somebody somewhere in Slate or Huffington Post or something has compared a American predestination, puritanical idea of having been chosen by God um, on the one hand in the American political system, predestined to be ruler, and then on the other the king who was chosen while in the egg, so they say, um, meant to be ruler even when they were unmarked as ruler. And then when they were ruler, they said, I have always been this. I have always held this spirit of kingship. So the ideological ideas of authoritarianism are the most compelling to me because Donald Trump is, I think, most able to use his 
uh, his ideological power. That's the key to his success is not whether or not he's a good ruler or a good communicator or a good policymaker. It's how he wields ideology and gets people in this country to vote against their own self-interest because they believe they align with his ideology. And it's the same thing with an Egyptian king. You get people to to join the draft labor work and sign up voluntarily and go and drag pyramid stones to something that's going to take 20 years to build because you believe you will somehow be rewarded for it in this life and the next. And ideology, as I teach my students, is, um, is the most uh, powerful of social powers because it can be neither proven nor disproven. And it, it makes people turn against their own best interests. And, um, and Donald Trump has that. Uh, in space. It's a common belief that history repeats itself, or we can look into our historical crystal ball and see what has happened before and perhaps predict what will happen in our future. So you said there were there were many in ancient Egypt that could be akin to Donald Trump. So who is one of those people? And what happened to them? And is it is it a peek into what might happen to us? Well, I think that the best comparison, if we're making if we're making analogies here and we're looking at what happens to unchecked power, um, power where even when people talk about it, discuss and say this shouldn't be allowed to happen and yet no one does anything about it, which is I think the moment that we're living through now, then I think we'd have to look to Amenhotep III and his son Amenhotep IV, otherwise known as Akhenaten, and look at what happens when there is so much of a concentration of wealth at the top of society and so much unchecked power ideologically that it creates even a, a new religion, a new capital city, a turnover of, of people making decisions at the top, um, a clean slate of new policymakers, the people who will do anything that the king wants, to demand that people bow in the king's presence instead of standing upright. Um, th- these are all things that Akhenaten, when he changed his name, instituted changes capital and, and all of these things. And for 17 years, this man, Akhenaten, had control of Egypt's money and ideological message and was able to wield that control over his people, over his family, um, with great success, with impunity. At his death, however, and, and really, let me go back and just say that you could argue that only in ancient Egypt, where there was such faith in divine kingship, would this be allowed at all. Or maybe you wouldn't that once people see enough um, or are seduced by that authoritarianism and the safety it provides or, or identify with that ideology, then Hitler can win. Mao can win. The killing fields of Cambodia can win. People can see that what Donald Trump does and do nothing, stand by. Um, but there will come a time when that leader is removed or dies or leaves, um, maybe of his own free will. And then people look back and there is a vilification of that leader and a shame in association with having done what that leader asked you to do, almost like leaving a cult. Like your eyes are opening. Like, I can't believe I was in that Scientology cult or I can't, I'm reading a book about Scientology. (laughs) I'm going clear. Very, very interesting. Oh yeah. I actually was raised in the church of Scientology. Oh my goodness. I'm not a Scientologist, but it's like, I have some interesting insights. So I'm with you on being fascinated. 
I was just saying to my husband, Remy, I said, the cruelest thing is what this does to the children who are not choosing this and are punished or put in these nurseries. It's, oh my God, um, the separation mm-hmm. from the yeah. parent and how they gain control over the adults by that, um, by doing that. But anyway, um, so I think that, I hope that there will be a reckoning the, with, with what we're dealing with now. The question is, really, how much farther do we have to go? Is Donald Trump, and this is where I get real cynical and, and more of a historian, that, and I've seen many other historians write exactly the same thing, that he is just the buffoon at the beginning of the, the long dark that the United States is about to enter of authoritarianism. That he's just the, the fool that's able to use the ideology, that there will be far better users, wielders, of this ideology to come, who will be much more skilled in policymaking, in law creation, in, in uh, manipulating Congress um, than anything Donald Trump can do. This is just the beginning. And that there could be something far worse after this that, that pulls America down to its knees. And then when we look back, the shame will be greater. There, there's a part of me that if history repeats itself and if the, the, there is nothing new under the sun, then I suspect we may have to go through more of a, of a dark time than what we've gone through already. Now, Akhenaten, was he the pharaoh that switched from uh, polytheistic deity worship to the very first monotheistic religion? That's, it's arguable. There are many Egyptologists, and the earliest Egyptologists, as you mentioned, um, Wallace Budge, um, at the beginning of this show, who suggests that Akhenaten was the first monotheist, the first one to understand that there was one God and, um, and to worship that God. And, the, you know, there are parts of his text that suggest this, where he, or parts of his iconoclasm that suggest this, when he sends out men bearing chisels to remove certain words in Egyptian texts, he sends them to remove the word gods in plural. He also sends them out to remove um, the names of other particular gods. Amun and Amun Re um, were were uh, really targets of, of his iconoclasm, exactly, in favor of his god, the Aten, the one god, the visible god, the god that needs no cult statue, the god that you can feel and see in the sky above you, in the heavens. And of course, in Egypt, a very, very strong and powerful image that is, right? But there, the, by the same token, however, this man, Akhenaten, made himself into a god, made his family into, his wife Nefertiti into a goddess alongside him, made his children mini-goddesses, and made that... This is sounding familiar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we could talk about, you know what, when, when you have Donald Trump talking about his sexual attraction to his daughter, and I talk about this in my new book, Ivanka, um, and that the only reason he's not dating her is because he's his, her, her father. That's very Egyptian authoritarian. That's a man who can take the next generation, even his own generation, his own blood, find his own self, narcissistic self, the most attractive. Amenhotep III elevated two of his daughters to great royal wife, and Akhenaten did the same. And um, the analogies there, I think, are, are also appropriate. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, we've come back to the idea of authoritarianism and ideology. It doesn't have to be monotheistic. I think that what's most useful and the connection between the two is that it's narcissistic. It's about the ruler at the center of the ideology. And if you can pull that off, 
then look at what they've done in America. Look what he's done. He's got all the Christians ignoring that you give money to the poor. All of the Christians ignoring that you're supposed to take care of the least of us. That the rich fat man has the hardest time get, getting into heaven like the eye of the needle, right? The, that analogy from the New Testament. Um, and we've all ignored this in favor of the authoritarian ideology. And um, that's, a, that's a frightening thing. It doesn't last forever. There will be pushback eventually. The question is, what is rock bottom for the United States of America? And I don't have the, question, the answer to that question. Right. You know, when you were saying that, hey, this might be just the beginning and we're entering a dark period, I felt like Eeyore, like a dark rain cloud came over me. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, man. And and so that is my question. You may not have the answer. Are we just going to end up being victims of historical circumstance and, and cyclical behavior and have to go through this? Or is there anything we can do to actually break that cycle? Do you think there is? A good friend of mine wrote a book called um, The Great Leveler. And his name is Walter Scheidel, S-C-H-E-I-D-E-L. He's a Stanford professor, a Rome, ancient Roman historian. And this, this book, The Great Leveler, essentially says that human societies, complex civilization, move towards greater and greater inequality as the civilization ages. And that this is a, an organic process where the haves end up having increasing amounts and increasing large percentage of the wealth of a given society. And I think we all know we are, we are globally going through that process, all of us as we speak. What Walter Scheidel points out in his book, and this is the part where the little Eeyore rain cloud or big Eeyore rain cloud is when it descends upon us, points out is that the thing that levels society is great pain, crisis, distress, and just horrific things like droughts that lead the climate change that leads to drought that leads to failed harvest that leads to starvation that leads to government collapse or plagues that kill a third or a half of the population or great wars that kill massive amounts of young men uh, dark ages go governments will collapse again th these things are painful moments that humanity has lived through and will live through again and the his point is that it's only with um, great devastation that society is rebuilt on a more equal playing field. The smaller population, where the rich do not have everything in society in their, in their cold, clammy hands. And unless we can somehow policy right our way out of this, and I, do we, does anyone see anyone in government doing that right now? I do not. Um, the rich do not like to give up their, their power and wealth. And throughout history, they, they do not do so. They generally must be forced to do so by circumstance or revolution or, or something. And the question is, how bad? Generally, people are, are lazy and they, they go along with things until they get really bad or things are forced upon them, a war or a devastating drought or climate change. And all of these things are potentially poised upon us. And ask some, some child in Syria or Yemen how they feel about life right now. They're going through the great leveling process, this painful human process that humankind goes through um, throughout a complex civilization. This is, this is the norm, these ups and downs of prosperity and wealth on the one hand, generally in the hands of a very few, and then uh, a collapse on the other and, and an more even playing field through that pain and destruction. Um, I'm no prognosticator. There's Walter Scheidel, but history is an excellent tool, and it is 2020. And you can look back and say, 
oh my God, look at, look at how we, we human beings have done this. Not dozens, but hundreds, if not thousands of times gone through this process. And we, we will go through it again. It's just a question of when and how. Wow. That is just amazing. Like it's, oh no, go ahead. I'm, I'm depressed, but I'm also hopeful. <laughs> like I'm feeling all of the things right now. Yeah. This is like an existential moment. So I'm, I'm going to bring us out of that with the, with the last question that we have for Kara here. Now, knowing that a lot of what is the written record of ancient Egypt is funerary in nature, but I know that there are other, things that are written down in pyramids and in on walls that you have seen that talk about major life events. Is there anything at all, because I'm trying to bring this back to American sex, is there anything there at all about sexuality in the hieroglyphs? Oh my God, there's so much about sexuality in the hieroglyphs, and now I feel bad talking about Trump and power. You know, they're, no, they're no, very intricately tied. They really are, but yeah. Oh, patriarchy and yes, all of that, and ideologies yes. and they, and I and Christianity and male gods. Okay, fine. That's I feel less bad because Egypt. I mean, Egypt is create its idea of the world creation is a masculine orgasmic big bang of of uh, orgasm that is created by the male god with himself. Um, and when I teach this in undergraduate classes, you can imagine the eyes widening. It's very different from and God spoke. <laughs> you know, Wait, are you saying world. and God ejaculated? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's. I mean, I'm saying and God jacked off is what I'm saying <laughs> and created himself. And then he he sneezes out this light filled emptiness to create the void where the world can be placed. And then he spits out. And that sneeze is a male god, and then he spits out a female god, and that goddess, and then those two brother and sister pair then create the next generation, and then so on and so forth. So the ancient Egyptians understood creation in in the way that they saw it all around them in the in nature as a sexual process that never ended. And every temple that they built was meant to facilitate this sexual recreation of the world. That that the male god. And here we come back to the patriarchy, don't we? Needed to have a safe space for that orgasmic self-creation, whether it was every year like Osiris or every day like the sun god. It, he needed to be given the, the safe context in which to have that moment with himself. And he needed goddesses to contain that sexuality so he could create his own self, his own future self, but also so that he could have that sexual release. And I talk about this in my uh, first trade book, The Woman Who Would Be King, at the very beginning where Hatshepsut has the title, The Hand of the God. That is not an accidental title. It was meant to be a sexual title. And then I create a hypothetical scene in which Hatshepsut actually helps the God statue in the temple create a sexual release in whatever form that, that may have taken in the ancient world. Um, the, the Egyptians understood their, their very existence as an ongoing sexual existence, and every male god as a contributor to the, to the ongoing uh, rising and falling of the Nile, rising and setting of the sun, um, daily life cycles. If they didn't have that male sexuality, they would be nothing. And then I'll, I'll end with this image. There are temples throughout Egypt that are filled with gods who are cloaked, 
standing with one hand out of their cloak and then their erect phallus coming out of the cloak as well. It's giant, it's visible, and there is no mistaking what is happening. The first monumental statue from, that was ever built in the entire world is Egyptian and is of a god masturbating the world and himself into existence. Um, this is very uncomfortable for the modern Muslim population that now inhabits Egypt. Um, very problematic to see the sexuality so starkly displayed. But the ancient Egyptians, they had, they had no problem with it. It's the, it's the alpha and the omega of, of human existence. Wow. Itself. So with all of this sexual imagery so intricately weaved into their ideology, how did this translate to the everyday Egyptian? Were they like getting it on, shame-free, doing their thing? Like what, what was the average Egyptian sex life like and their attitudes towards sex? It's more complicated because the patriarchy still exists and you still have people who own land and want to pass that land down to their progeny. You thus can't let your daughters and sisters and wives go off and have and choose their own partners. They must still be controlled. Having said that, there is more sexual freedom and more sexual depiction in Egypt compared to a place like Greece or Rome, Greece in particular, and or the ancient Middle East. Um, but there's still a harem for the king. There still seems to be control of that harem. But the, the, one of the things that's so interesting to me, we think of a mother earth. The Egyptians thought of a father earth. We think of a, of a Zeus with the thunderbolts in the sky. The Egyptians thought of a, a female sky goddess. And they didn't blame the female in a microcosm, like in a village in Egypt, a woman who was married to a man and couldn't get pregnant. She would not be blamed for not being able to get pregnant. Her husband would be blamed. She would be said to be dry. He, he wasn't producing the semen. She was in no way at fault in the situation. And that translates into Egyptian society, ancient Egyptian society, in a larger way. Less onus is placed upon her. Less blame if a son is not born. It's not her fault. And so this, these sins of Eve, are not visited upon the ancient Egyptian woman like they are upon the Christian woman. And it's amazing how just one small thing of understanding how the world was created by a masculine orgasmic event again and again translates in many ways into more powerful for, for the female socially on the ground in her own village, city, or community, or, or family. Wow. I am totally fascinated. So, all right. So this, now you know why I love Egyptology so much. I know. I know, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing? I'm creating the world. Leave me alone. Um, so, okay. <laughs> And so you know I, who is also obsessed with masturbation? L. Ron Hubbard is obsessed with the masturbation. But anyway. That I didn't know. I know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, how else is yeah. he going to get clear yeah. of all of his thetans? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. It's, it's yeah. getting clear. It's climbing the it bridge. interesting because he was taught by his parents was this horrible thing to do. And so he grew up very upset by that. And then, yeah, wrote this manifesto about how masturbation wasn't bad. But that's the secret. Um, memoir of L. Ron Hubbard. And Ooh, anyway, I have to read yes, this. I mean, if you're interested in ideology and the power it can have over people, this this book I'm reading right now is very, very good. Ooh, I will. I will check that out. So, my one last question, you know, talking about all of this ideology, and it seems very, um, you know, sex is used as a tool for reproduction, for creation. It's very binary. It's very hetero. Are there any evidences of non-binary sexuality or homosexuality, bisexuality, or no? Are we pretty traditional when it comes to sex in Egypt? Yes and no. Um, 
any patriarchy that passes down its property needs to make sure it has a binary marriage-based, legally, economically understood sexuality that produces the next generation. So that's not going to change. And that's why all complex civilizations make sexuality binary when the actual biological reality is much richer and much more complicated. Having said that, ideologically, the ancient Egyptians produced images of hermaphrodites uh, throughout time that suggest a power of male and female reproductive possibility in one human body. And, and they, so there are images of these figures called Hopi from ancient Egypt. And Hopi is thought of as the Nile flood, that force that would move from the Ethiopian highlands and from Lake Victoria, flood all of ancient Egypt and bring with it this rich, um, silty earth when the flood would recede that you could farm on with great ease. If you like, you can think of this, and I think the Egyptians did, as a giant ejaculation, a giant effluence covering their land. And all of that semen, all of that, that richness left behind is what produced their crops of wheat, barley, flax, and, and all kinds of other things. Um, Hopi, is off, this flood, is often depicted as male and female simultaneously. A man with, with a, a penis, but also depicted with pendulant breastfeeding breasts. And then a giant belly that almost looks pregnant, but he's masculine. So he is, he is all of creation in one body. And the Egyptians understood this creation as male and female, but then also understood that they could, they could encapsulate it and represent it as male and female together. So ideologically, they understood that. But then if you're asking me about society, you know, do they have images of hermaphrodites from actual society or are there transgender people from actual society besides these queens who had to masculinize to match what was expected of them? And or is there a homosexuality that was accepted in ancient Egyptian society? And really, for the most part, the answer is no. Um, there's a wonderful tale called Horus and Seth, the contendings of Horus and Seth from the New Kingdom. Ramesid period was when it was first written down. And there, Seth, the uncle who has killed his brother, the king Osiris, is contending with Osiris's son, a mere youth, Horus, for the throne. And they are fighting, having these epic battles. You know, they turn themselves into hippos. They fight underneath the, the Nile. It just goes on and on. And there's one point where Seth comes along to Horus and attempts to rape him. And Horus knows what he's going to do. And he puts his hand, it's the text is very clear, puts his hand between his thighs. So instead of Seth, I, I imagine, and they're not this explicit, entering him bodily, he enters into his hand and he catches the semen of the god Seth and keeps it in his hand. Seth thinks that he has done a man's deed to Horus and goes and brags about it to all of the gods. And the gods are horrified by this. They gasp and they're like, oh my God, we can't have Horus be king. This is disgusting. He's allowed himself to be raped. He's nothing more than a, than a man-woman. It's disgusting. And when, his, when Horus's mother Isis finds out that this has happened and he shows her the semen, he brings her Seth's semen, she screams and cuts off his hand, grows another because she's the goddess of magic. And she takes that semen 
and brings it to it's such a great tale. <laughs> you have to find it and read it. Takes <laughs> I'm like, this, wow. I know. Takes this, reading it in late Egyptian Heretic is a little more painful, but it's still fun because of the subject matter. Great. She takes the semen of Seth and puts it into the lettuce leaves that, that Seth likes to eat the most because he thinks it's an aphrodisiac. And he goes and he eats his lettuce and he eats his own semen. And so then when there is a tribunal and the God demand the proof, they're like, we need to know if this actually happened because, you know, they weren't really there. They need, they need proof. So they say, let the semen of, of Seth be called so we can see if Horus is really this, you know, emasculated, non, not fit to be king, this mere child. And they call the semen forth and it comes out of Seth's own body. And they all laugh at him because they think that he's he's doing auto fellatio. <laughs> that he's, that oh, my he's, goodness. Right? And because that's the only way you can understand it. It comes out of his own belly. Right. And emerges from his head. And they all laugh at him, you know, having this this sex with himself. He's not considered disgusting or wrong for doing this auto fellatio, but they do make fun of him for it. But Seth is. He's ridiculed while Horace is vindicated um, that this man's deed was not done to him. But who saved him at the end, I would like to point out. But it's the mother. It's the woman. It's the, it's the, the clever magician who's able to negotiate all of this to finally show that her son is the one who is meant to be king of all of it. And at the same time, the world's first carb-free snack was invented. <laughs> Semen salad? And on that note. Yeah, it's true. It's very low carb. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. This has been absolutely 100% fascinating. I have so many new thoughts and ideas floating through my head, and I was a little Eeyore depressed for a while. Yeah, but we brought it back to sex. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this was awesome. Kira, if people want to find you, I know you have a great Facebook page. Where can people learn more about you, see stuff you post, and all that fun stuff? I'm on all the social media. I'm on Facebook. Um, I have those reposted to Twitter. And I just started an Instagram account where I'm trying to, you know, get to show more pictures, show more of my own daily life activities, which has been fun. And all of them are under Karakuni, so it's it's pretty easy to to find me. Awesome. And for those listening along, we will have those links in our show notes, both at sunnymegatron.com and americansexpodcast.com. Kara, thank you so much for con- even considering coming on oh, our show. Pleasure. Like I was dreading calling you, just like I thought that you would freak out and like. Sex. We're a bunch of pervs. Yes. We're not. Well, we are, but you know, we're also educated pervs and, and history geeks. So this, this actually, I think that our listeners are going to love this particular interview. Thank you so I'm, much, Doctor. I'm Karakuni. so glad. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag Psychicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. 
Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.